Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If then, is there any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete. I think in the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And it's for this reason that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and under earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please be seated. Um, honestly, before we get started today, I just, I have to confess, like, I am, like, I, I really don't have it today, if I can, if I can say that. Um, Mentally and emotionally, I've just kind of been on pretty much at like at the end of my rope, if that, if that makes sense. So just um, as we're going through this today, yeah, pray for me. You know, pray for me as we're, as we're going through this. Um, um, to add on to that too, like I ran out of my Adderall this morning. Like, so it's like I had to get caught up in that. So that was, that was another big thing, but I won't go into that too much. Um, but yeah, so let's, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it now. Um, so as, as we were kind of going through these verses, it starts off with this kind of whole, like, if then. If then, is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, really what this means is that this is contingent on what we have kind of already learned. So we're going to kind of go back a couple Sundays here. So two weeks ago, for, for Jake, um, he was kind of going through his verses here. And one of the things he was talking about um, had to do with this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was really, really important for the Philippians to hear. So you remember, like, Paul is, is in prison in Rome at this time. And this may have been a really hard thing for the Philippians themselves to reconcile because the last time Paul was in prison in Philippi, he, went, he was beaten, went to jail, and that night, essentially, he was freed. Like, it was this cool event. They were worshiping, earthquake, awesome. They were, they, they were freed. God released them from, from their prison. This is not the case here in Rome. In fact, in Rome, at the time of this writing, he was actually in prison for almost two years at this point. So really just kind of trying to reconcile the differences of knowing that God can take him out of prison so he can continue to minister, so he can continue to share God's world, world, uh, word, um, but at the same time knowing this is his current circumstance. And this is kind of part of the reason why they sent Epaphroditus to Paul in order to kind of share encouragement. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But he says this line, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and it's something that Jake pointed out. It wasn't, his, it wasn't that he was necessarily trying to seek death. Okay, and, and a quick, quick aside here. Uh, if you are struggling with depression, or if you're struggling with whether or not uh, with, with suicide, if you want to end your life, know that that is not what God is asking for you. God has a plan and purpose for your life, and you can rest in that. God can bring you healing. 
And in fact, one of the biggest things I want to say that this life and living out the purpose that God has for you is not dependent on your ability to keep everything together. Amen? Amen. Yes. If that was the case, we would all be in a lot of trouble. Right? And so it's the grace of God that we're able to kind of keep moving forward. In fact, what it says is that it's in our weakness, in our failings, that's where Jesus shows his strength, where the cross is made perfect. Okay, so kind of getting back here. But he says to live as Christ. And so the goal of everything is that Paul wants to be with Jesus, and he knows he's going to be with Jesus. So to living in Christ means that everything that we do in this life should be in pursuit of the goal of living for Christ. So Jesus' goal was to reconcile everyone for himself. And that's what he did on the cross. He reconciled the world to himself by taking on our sins. So the goal of our lives is that we should verbally and non-verbally tell the story of Jesus. And that's the story of the gospel. Now, when I was, uh, when I was going through, the Bible, through uh, kind of Bible school and getting my degree in theology, I kind of went through this time of like where tracks were really, really big. And I don't know if tracks were ever really big here in Seattle, but they were really, really big in Texas at one point in time. Um, so there were things like the, the four spiritual laws, if you've ever heard of that. And it was like, okay, just as there are like laws that govern the earth, there are also these four spiritual laws that govern the heavenly realms. But one of the biggest ones had to do with like the Roman road, Roman road to salvation, if anyone's kind of familiar with that. Um, and it was kind of predicated on these, these verses. And it was Romans 3.23, that all falls, uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of life is eternal life. Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates in his love uh, for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, uh, he died for us. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. 5.1, that since you have been justified through faith, that we can have peace through God. And 8.1, therefore... Now, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And this is the gospel. And this is kind of our, our goal that we live out. And in fact, it's exemplified a little bit more at the, at the end of Romans 10, 14. It says, how then, referring to those that don't know Jesus, can they call on him who they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful the feet of those who bring the good news. And this is what we're called to do. This is, this is our purpose, to bring the good news of Jesus to a world that needs it. So our lives should exemplify and glorify the person of Jesus Christ. Now last week, as, as Frank was talking, he was, he was going over points like Paul's appeal and Paul's desire and Paul's reminder. And one of the, the reminders that he was going out to was saying, hey, listen, you are not just a Roman citizen, but above all, you are citizens of Jesus, and that's who you belong to. That the Holy Spirit is, is the source of our unity, that they need to stand firm, that they need to display fruit, and they need to contend for the gospel. But everything is kind of wrapped around in Philippians 1.27, where he says, just this one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the rest of Philippians, the rest of the entire book of Philippians, is centered around this fact. So let's go ahead and, and jump into this um, in verses 2, 1 through 4. Again, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy... Then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing 
out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So what he's pointing out here, and he's getting on the same page with the Philippians. Again, as one of the things we had talked about before, the Philippian church was probably one of the more mature churches that Paul would write to and interact with. In fact, they were doing a lot of these things already. So he, they know that they were supposed to have um, encouragement with Christ. They know that they're going to be, they're supposed to be, you know, um, just encouraged by his love. And they were supposed to have the same type of fellowship. And they were already showing the fruit of the, a lot of these things. But he's calling them to go deeper when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. And this, is, this is a really big ask. And think about that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's really, really hard because everything ingrained inside of us wants to be selfish. When things get hard, in fact, we have a tendency to go into this mode where it's easier to kind of protect ourselves and to protect our self-interest rather than look to the needs of others. And this really is kind of seen uh, a lot through marriage. Um, as, as anybody that's married, has ever been married or is currently married, some of the hardest times is that when you start struggling, it's really easy to get self-focused. Um, and it's really easy to start thinking, hey, the other person should start to meet my needs. They're the ones that should be able to say, you know what, you need to love me, you need to give grace to me right now. And when both parties start doing that, that's where the problem comes into play. And so the goal when we start talking about that we need to think of others better than ourselves, as in marriage, we want to consider our spouses more than us. We want to consider their needs. And if both parties are doing that, that's the, that's the foundation for a successful marriage. And so as the church, we are called to do the same thing. And in fact, as, as Paul is writing this here, he is, he is not necessarily that there, there are big issues going on right now, but there are definitely hints of disunity, and then there's a big potential danger of disunity going on. And this is the reason why it's just a hint. And we can kind of compare kind of this verse with what's going on in 1 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. And he says, right after he gets into like, hey, you know, he's introducing his letter, and then he says, I pray for you guys. And then immediately he goes into, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you that my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, hey, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? So there, it's very direct. It's like, hey, this is going on. There are some very serious issues that, that are happening here. That's, that's not really what's kind of happening with Paul. In fact, Paul learns a lot about what's going on in, in the, uh, the, the church in, in Philippi because they sent this delegate over to, in order to show love to Paul, and that was Epaphroditus. And he goes and kind of brings, again, money and support and food and just encouragement with some other laborers. And it was kind of, it's almost written in an instant where they were just having normal conversations about what's going on. And, you know, Epaphroditus saying, hey, you know, these are some of the things that we're starting to see. And so this is, again, this is just one of those views where Paul is showing kind of this pastoral spirit of warning them and asking them to go deeper and to understand what are the same 
dangers that are going on. In fact, if we, if we look kind of in, the, in verse 2, we see where it says, you know, having that same love united in spirit. And this is a little bit of a, a callback to what Frank was talking about in, in last week, where, again, it was called sharing this fellowship in the spirit. Um, one of the things that was really neat is that, you know, Frank, I think your, your parents had said that what was really cool about seeing the church was just the, the, the diverse backgrounds that we have here. Like, there's a lot of us that come from, from different cultures or countries or upbringings or even just denominations, right? And that's, that's extremely important. It's extremely important for the church to be diverse um, in, in the way that we were brought up and raised. Because for two things, number one, it has heavenly implications. So if we, if we look at Revelation, uh, verses 7, 9 through 10, and this is, this is John speaking, he says, after I looked... There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language, which no one can number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. So we know this is what heaven's going to look like. It's going to look different. It's going to just be, it's not just the American church. It's not just the church in Europe or in China or in South America, but it's all people everywhere bowing down and worshiping Jesus. The other thing that's important is that it's this diversity and being together when we do have differing opinions that shows unity through Jesus. So the early gatherings of the church you would have Jewish people, you would have Gentiles, you would have men, women, you'd have rich, you'd have poor, you'd have slaves, all together worshiping together. And in fact, if, if you wouldn't think that would be harder, there wouldn't be differing opinions and how things were done or how life was lived out or in a sense how we should be able to kind of use these resources in order to, to reach the city, those type of things and arguments were probably still there at the same we're here. In fact, that's one of Jesus' last prayers that he prays when he says, listen, my prayer is that you would all be one as I and the Father are one. And so this is the same thing that was going on. So that we know that this unity, essentially, it didn't, it didn't happen normally in other situations. There weren't a lot of places for these type of groups to get together and share the same space. It happened. In fact, if you were, if you were a, a, a Jewish heritage, and you would look at, it'd be easy to look at a lot of people to say, hey, they're unclean, you know. I'm clean because I've gone through all these processes of kind of obeying the Sabbath, of, of washing my hands at certain times, of eating certain things or not eating certain things. Um, and it would have been really easy to kind of sow this type of, of disunity. But in fact, Jesus is calling him to be together and essentially say, no, your identity is not in that background. Your identity is in Jesus himself. In fact, that's why we see in, in James chapter 2, 1 through 4, where he kind of calls this out. And he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes comes in, if you were to look on favor with wanting the, the, the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in this good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here by the footstool. You, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And just as what he's saying here to the Philippian church is that we are saved by the same grace of Jesus and that we were saved, and it's not by our status or works 
or any other earthly measure. And because we were saved that way, now that we live, the life that we live is not also done through those things. It's not done through works. It's not done through status. So we cannot say, I, I give more. Well, I serve more than others. Or I study more. I'm, I'm at church more. Or I engage in social justice more. Or I support a political party that values life. Or I'm more spiritual because I go to church every Sunday. Or I'm more spiritual because I don't go to church and I'm just free to worship any way that I want. We don't say that. In fact, um, you know, again, if, I, if you don't know, like I'm, I'm originally from Texas. And um, one of the things that's, that's really unique and kind of different to here is that there, there are a lot more churches, all right? And not only are there a lot more churches, but the churches that you see are, are fairly decent size. So it's, a lot of times it's common to see like a, you know, a 2,000 church, a person church here, and then right across the street a couple blocks out, another two to 3,000 person church. And that, there, that happens a lot, you know, especially when you're growing up in the Bible Belt. And so I was having a conversation with uh, one of my friends uh, a few months ago, and we were kind of talking about this difference in the dynamic, and we were talking about some sort of like kind of doctrinal thing, and I don't really don't even remember what it was. But he was saying we just kind of find that hard because people start getting into these disputes, and then they just end up leaving and they go to a different church where they seem to kind of align better. And I said, really, that's, that's one of the differences that I see here in Seattle. Because there are like, there aren't as many churches, a lot of times we are forced to kind of stay in a church because really we just, we find that fellowship more than a lot of times we find those kind of like those doctrinal distinctives where that were in a lot of places kind of drive you away here we're able to kind of work through those and put those aside in order that we can show unity in jesus and so to be in a healthy church your views should both be listened to and challenged and another aside no church will believe everything that you believe I really want to point that out there. And it's going to be really easy to kind of go church shopping and try to find different things, but just know no church is going to be perfect for you. And in fact, that's, that's okay. Um, because sometimes, a lot of times in life, I know me, I've had to change my mind over and over about things that I believe or things that I put emphasis on more than other things. Um, and in fact, a sign of a healthy church is the willingness to do that as well, too, that the church leadership and overall, we can kind of have conversations and say, okay, this is where we need to put emphasis on. This is where we need to take it away. This is where we need to actually talk more to and that listening. So conversation, debate is healthy when everything is focused on Jesus. So kind of to summarize that, because we have been encouraged by Christ because we've been consoled by his love, because we've been filled with the Spirit and have been giving a supernatural affection and mercy, then we must not be selfish, conceited, or prideful. But we must be united in spirit and love and have love the intent and on the purpose of glorifying Christ by sharing that gospel. So let's kind of move here into our, into our next passage. And this is in Philippians 2, going through 5 through 7 where Paul now is, again, he's, he's quoting a, a hymn. Now, we don't know if this is like a, a hymn that Paul wrote or if it was something that somebody else wrote, but this was something that would have been common, uh, that, that a lot of churches would, be, would know during this time frame. And he says, again, not the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. 
One of the things that's interesting here, I know the, the, the CSB, that's, that's essentially what we use. They use this word that instead he has something to be exploited. The better translation is, is something to be grasped or taken. Um, and this, a lot of times, is seen as a direct kind of illustration comparing Jesus to Adam. And this is something Paul does a lot. In fact, if you kind of read Romans, it talks a lot how, like, G- Jesus is the, the better Adam. So if you're thinking of back to Genesis, you know, um, the serpent had confronted, and he said, hey, listen, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God, knowing both good and evil. And essentially, when that fruit was eaten, that's where the punishment took place. And God had to, like, kick them out of the garden, because if they then had that, and then they had the, the other fruit that essentially would have made them immortal, um, there would have been a problem. So that, that started that separation between man and, and God himself. And we see that in Romans chapter 5 and 5 through 19. And he's talking about the, the gift of Jesus in terms of his, his sacrifice on the cross. And he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass, Adam's, if many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin. Because from one sin came to the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and gift of righteousness reign in the life of that one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as though one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Just as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so Jesus is the exact opposite example of Adam. Adam reached out trying to take something from himself. Jesus didn't do that. He actually emptied himself, taking the likeness of humanity. Humans are, are less than God. Jesus became human. Not only that, he became a servant. And then not only that, then he died. And this, this has big implications when we start talking about really the culture at the time and then what Jesus did. So if you kind of really start, start looking through this, and we can see this here in the next few verses, where he said, again, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And if we look how it is viewed during that time, so the Romans' view of the crucifixion itself is that this was a very gruesome and disgraceful act. Um, the crucifixion, basically, it, it didn't start with the Roman Empire. It was actually kind of brought in by, by a, a, another country. But here's what, the, the, uh, here's what Cicero states about it. It says, the, the Roman statesman and philosopher said that crucifixion was so horrible that the word cross should never be mentioned in polite society. This is his exact quote. Let the very word cross be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even in their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. So for them, uh, the crucifixion in Roman times was applied mostly to slaves, disgraced soldiers, Christians, and, and foreigners. It was very, very rarely applied to Roman citizens, again, because it was considered so bad. Now, with the Jewish view, it was even much worse. So not only was it gruesome and disgraceful, but it was also essentially a sign of a curse. So if we look at Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, it says, If anyone is found guilty of offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and if you hang his body on a tree, 
You're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile that land your Lord your God is, is giving you as an inheritance. It was so bad, that person was considered a curse, that if you, if you let that stay up overnight, it would essentially, that curse would then apply to the, to the, the ground itself. And so there were very strict implications for this. So the fact that Jesus himself was beaten and he was hung on a tree was taking on the ultimate curse that we deserve for ourselves. And so then there, there is now our response. And that response is exaltation and praise. And that's what we see starting in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the result is going to be eternal praise from everyone. And again, if we, if we think back to kind of Revelation, we see the same thing. It was multitudes of nations being together, crying out in, the long, in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sitteth on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is the whole purpose. Paul is building this argument now, saying, okay, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have all this stuff, then again, take on the same attitude in Christ. Adopt it. Live out this way as Christ, as, as Christ was able to take himself all the way down to the bottom, becoming human, a servant, and then obedient to even death, even death on a cross again, which is, which is accursed, then we need to be doing the same things in our lives. So our interactions that we have with each other, our interactions that we have with the world around, it, around us, have to be uh, sim sim symbolized by this same fact, by this same humility. So what is, what is our response? How do we respond to this? Well, again, as, as we saw in Philippians 1.27, is that we need to live as citizens of heaven. And in Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but humility considers others more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In Matthew 22.37-30, he says, in, in conjunction with this, and this is where a lot of this comes from, when asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the greatest and most important command. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself, for all the law and all the prophets depend on these two commands. So our job, again, going back to our purpose in order to live in Christ, is to love God. And that same love that we have for God then pours out through us in order to love others, in order to love our neighbors, and to love them more than ourselves. And loving your neighbor as yourself means putting aside your own needs and opinions uh, and then seek to encourage others, to love others. Um, in fact, it says again, and Paul says again, outdo one another in showing love. And this is the sacrifice. The sacrifice itself is that, again, we have all opinions of how things should be done. But our, our goal is to be able to kind of look past ourselves, to put that down and to focus on Jesus, to look to the best for others. And so... Our job, again, is to love God with remembrance and praise. Now, we are getting ready to, to celebrate communion, so if I can ask kind of the, you know, those that are your serving to please come up. But we are not just to remember and praise today, but all days. 
And so we're going we're gonna to read this last verse here. And again, this is going back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 20 through 31. And it says, well, who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified. Again, a stumbling block to the Jews, again, because they saw it as conversed, and folly to the Gentiles because it shouldn't make sense. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than any man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly centers. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are all in Christ Jesus. And he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray.